You're listening to Method to the Madness, a weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefer, and today I'm interviewing Ed Bice, co-founder and CEO of Medan, a San Francisco company building digital tools that assist global journalists in the battle against fake news. You're on the front lines of what is kind of a hostile environment to journalists right now. Yep. Let's talk about what technologies you're enabling to help journalists out there. Journalism has been embattled for a long, long time. The um, shift we've seen in the journalism threat model in the last five years is we went from worrying about where revenues were coming from We solved that issue in part by thinking about new commission content models, and and then suddenly we woke up with a new president, this this crazed lunatic in the White House, and we looked inward as journalism and journalism tech community, and and we noticed that that we had lost trust, and we'd lost our ability to assert a set of facts and have those prove more durable and influential than a set of provably not facts. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think that we went from this deep despair over not having a really good revenue business model to a more existential threat of really not having the words that we're writing and the, the stories that we're publishing have influence and have meaning, and this is this is a deeper crisis than than uh, the business model. Is this when you founded or co-founded Medan? No, we have to go way back. Medan has been around since very early days of social web. It started with the war in Iraq protest. I'm sure many of your listeners were were at the protests in the Bay Area on the first day that we started dropping bombs. It was a profound global moment. It was the first time I I felt globally networked. Even though I'd been on the internet since it was an internet, there was on that day this awareness that hundreds of marches were happening around the world. Literally tens of millions of people were taking to the streets to say, this is not what we want. This is not how we should respond. Second year of the, the post-9-11 era. Feels so naive now, but I remember thinking as I was walking the streets of San Francisco that, wow, this is what it looks like when we're able to change, influence history. And, and there was really a sense that the power of this many people could do it. I went with um, my good friend Rouge Giuseppe uh, Deza, who's, who's a human rights photographer, worked in El Salvador. Rouge and I were kind of separated, and there were some people blocking Market Street, and I was standing on the sidewalk. And I can still kind of imagine the uh, bald, very tall, very large policeman uh, reached out, grabbed me from the sidewalk, pulled me into the street, and said, you can't be in the street. I'm arresting you. There are good cops. This was a bad cop. I was not intending to be arrested that day, but I was arrested, along with, I think, 1,300 other people straps around the wrists and put on the bus and hauled over to Pier 39. And I didn't know it at the time. I would have, I would have kissed the guy if I would known how he would have changed my life at the time. I wrote an email from that experience, sent it to five friends via, I think it was an AOL 
online email account. And uh, one of those friends who was uh, an environmental scientist wrote back and his, his dad had started a tool company, built it up, and he and his wife had inherited some money. And he said, Ed, I want to publish your the email that you've sent. You know, and my email questioned what we were doing post 9-11, you know, with my experience as, as a person who had traveled in the Muslim world and who had had homes open to me and just who had just such a different understanding of the world. You know, I also had the experience of studying with Paul Wellstone in college. And and so I had this latent activism, right? And and I expressed that into this email. You know, just what 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 the hell are we doing? This is crazy. We're creating generations of of misery for for this culture and, and the Iraqi people. And he wrote back and said, "I want to publish this as a full page run in the New York Times, so that people can have a different perspective on what's going on." And I know it sounds crazy, but this feels to me like this incredibly important moment in history. Within 10 minutes, I wrote him back. I'll do this, but it's not my, I'm not going to publish my words in the New York Times. I'm going to go out and find statements from people in Iraq and people in Palestine. I'm going to put those beside statements from Americans and Israelis, and we're going to start this people's opinion project. We will run this as a full page ad in the New York Times, and we will go out and source this content from around the world. And it'll get people thinking. It'll be provocative. The idea was that we would do this. We would publish it. People would be so moved that they would send us money, and we would do this again. And we'd start placing authentic, translated content from around the world in, you know, into the New York Times and, and, and kind of expand then to other papers and presses. And and, 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 and is this the digital uh, New York Times or was this, this the this, this was the uh, ink and paper New York Times. And so okay. in June of 2003, we, we ran a full page ad that said, in our efforts to bring democracy to the people of the world, we keep forgetting about the people of the world. And then had these translated voices below that. And it was very inspiring. And it didn't work. How we, do you know that? In terms of the amount of money that it takes to produce and place an ad that goes out to 3 million Sunday Times readers and the amount of revenue we received back from that project, you know, it was an utter failure. We had a, a short-lived organization called the People's Opinion Project and did global opinion polling. So, so we showed some of the early trends around global opinion of U.S. post 9-11 and post-Iraq invasion. That was pretty profound. We, we were able to, to show that, you know, our actions had resulted in this kind of mm -hmm. loss of mm -hmm. faith or trust in America. You mentioned that you had experience in the Arab world. Did you live there? What was your... I, I traveled and it wasn't the Arab world, actually, although all of our work since then has been. But I traveled through Pakistan, through northern Pakistan and into western China, Karakoram Highway. Mm. It's incredibly beautiful. The way we were treated there was was um, it was formative. Anyone who's listening to this who hasn't gone out into the world and traveled, you know that that was my most important education from that early experience. The effort and ethos early on was that the media diet it leads to these really narrow perceptions, which in turn support ill-advised policy decisions. We wanted to broaden that, and we saw the internet 
as you know, means of doing that. So everything we did in the early days had an online component. You know, at the time I was um, I was designing homes, design background. It's like this is a design problem. How do we diversify the media ecosystem? And the thing that we hit on early, early on was that language was such a fundamentally missing piece. The the internet was even in those days, you know, this pre Facebook, but even in those days the internet was going to millions and millions and millions of people all around the world and it was a bunch of linguistically siloed communities. So there were no translation. There was no translation. Uh, yeah, not to speak of and, and any machine translation was so bad back then that fundamentally useless. From that initial failed experiment, I started pounding the pavement, knocking on doors, calling people, and we got the intention of an Israeli and a Palestinian engineer at Carnegie Mellon University's Language Technologies Institute, and that put in motion the last 12 years, which... And you which, got a patent for that uh, translation. Uh, with with a, a great technologist who, who worked in Senator Leahy's office, actually. Is this when you founded? This is, yeah, so 2006. Yeah, fast forward 2006. And there's, there's a hilarious story, which I think I've never told publicly. Shortly after, the uh, idea kind of gelled. And the, these guys at Carnegie Mellon were like, yes, let's do this. And and this serious linguistic scientist is like, yeah, crowdsourced human plus machine translation with a reputation model behind it. These are great ideas. We should we should write this up. And for what it's worth, we have a patent on, on, on this and still needed some money to do this, right? So one of my dearest friends in the world, his stepfather's uncle, re- really successful banker in New York, and I asked for a meeting pretty nervous, but his family had had, um, escaped the Holocaust. And I knew that he was pretty motivated to contribute back. So I went into his office overlooking Central Park. I I had quit my job. I had done crazy things, which were unpopular with my family, to try to get this thing off the ground. And so I went into his office, quite nervous and penniless. Uh, I gave him the pitch. And I said, you know, language technology plus this thing called the internet. Imagine that must have appealed to him because you're getting at the truth. Yeah, yeah. He looked at me and he pointed at this picture of his grandfather at the end of the conference table. He said, "Mr. Bice, my my grandfather is smiling down on you today." In 1904 or something like this, a Swedish dentist walked into my grandfather's office in Dresden with a vision for language impacting global peace. And I looked at him, and I said, Esperanto? I was going to say that, because (laughs) it came out of the same kind of divisiveness. Yeah, and he said, precisely. My grandfather funded Esperanto, and I'm going to give you some seed funding to try to put this idea in motion. Language is such a fundamental divider. It's not a surprise that many people have said, oh, if only we could talk a common language, you know, the world would be a better place. So that put in motion Meet Anne. And MacArthur Foundation was one of those friends. The real break for us came when IBM put two of their research labs at our disposal. You know, we've had partnerships with IBM and now have a good partnership with Google, Google News Lab. You know, their interest is in seeing more data. And so IBM's interest was in us using this network to bring in more human data on top of the 
machine processing so that they can improve their models. With Google News Lab now, we're looking at how we bring in more credibility, how we can get journalists writing indicators of an article's credibility. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Method to the Madness, a weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley celebrating Bay Area innovators. Today I'm interviewing Ed Bice, the co-founder and CEO of Medan, a San Francisco company building digital tools and programs that promote collaborative verification, annotation, and translation, supporting journalists around the world. So are you a nonprofit? Yeah. So we okay. uh, three years ago, we were offered a big contract to do software development with one of the large social networks. And so we, we did form a for-profit then, and the nonprofit has an equity stake in that. We are a unique hybrid. 98% of our work is with the nonprofit now. Well, I um, first heard about or read yeah. about me, Dan, with the Arab Spring, all the protests, and you, yep. you all were pretty instrumental in translation. Yeah, yeah, so as soon as we started Median, we hired a small team in Cairo and started working on translating Arab media and and commentary on that media and putting that alongside uh, U.S. versions of that media or Western English language versions of that media and translating the English language into Arabic. So we, we built kind of the Internet's first bilingual side-by-side news site. We had roots in Cairo some of our good friends were in the middle of the the revolution and and still are um, we still have deep connections with Cairo still have employees there we spun off a media project there 2 years ago that was just blocked by the state of Egypt when we were doing translation work during Arab Spring the stuff that was coming off of Twitter and YouTube and Facebook was incredibly important we found that having no way to provide notes about the sources of that content, uh, no way to really do investigations into the the assertions made in that media. We, we felt like that was an area that deserved some development. So we went to um, some of our funders and said, hey, why don't you help us? Next phase of Median is going to be about not just translation on top of the social content, but also uh, verification and annotation, in, annotation, building context, helping. And you have specific products for that. I was reading yeah, about. Yeah. So, so check is is that product that came out of our experiences, and and it's and it's intended to be really simple. It's a tool that allows for collaborative verification notes. It also performs some machine processes, like makes it easy for a journalist to go out and look at the reverse image search. Uh, so if, if a piece of social media contains an image, uh, we provide a quick link that says, okay, here's where that image has appeared elsewhere. So if you see that it actually came from 10 years ago in Sudan and is not a, a picture of a current protest in Egypt, say, you've saved yourself a, a, an embarrassing moment. Because we are kind of early to that verification space, Google News Lab came to us three years ago when they were starting the first draft Initiative. So we were one of handful of NGOs and media orgs that came together to form the first draft group, which has been doing amazing research, trainings, uh, kind of leading a lot of the important work in in news verification and fact checking space. 
um, and is run by a brilliant woman named Claire Wardle, who was uh, before that a, the research director at the Tau Center at the Columbia School of Journalism. And, and First Draft is on a, a, a steep growth curve. And, and so I think you'll continue to see a lot of really great things coming out of that organization. And, and I think our contributions to that have been one of the really big success stories out of Medan. Let's talk about election land, which is an amazing moment in journalism history. The election land project was um, spun out of that same first draft, Google News Lab, Medan, but uh, with the Google Trends team and ProPublica in the lead. So ProPublica really... I really love ProPublica. Yeah, they're amazing. Really great people. So 94 days before the election, I got invited to Washington, D.C. to meet with Scott Klein from ProPublica and uh, Simon Rogers from Google Trends and uh, Claire from First Draft and a small set of people. And they're like, well... We want to do nationwide election monitoring, you know, with a thousand journalists ninety days from now. Ninety uh, days. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and at this point, we were in in a, a rewrite of of our software, and so I said, "Yes, of course." So it was it was a mad dash to pull pull that project together, and it's now collecting all sorts of awards. There's now a case study. We've uh, recreated this uh, for the French election now with a project called Crosscheck and a UK general election project as well with a pop-up newsroom component that had a bunch of journalism school students together. So the model is evolving. Election monitoring has historically just been this, you know, big agencies checking boxes and observing things. And so this is really the recognition that the internet, the social media landscape is this incredibly rich, valuable area to do election monitoring, to understand how elections are are in working real time. in yeah. real time and, and try to respond to that. So so I think there's something really important in this. The outcome was that you discovered there was no election fraud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And shortly after the election, Trump was saying there was fraud. Yeah. So has he not seen this data? No, he um you know the 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 irony is that you know 94 days before the election Trump had not talked about vote rigging. So we're we're starting this project and we're like, yep. Yeah, you know, we're going to be in an amazing position to look at voter day issues. And then, I don't know, 30 days, 40 days later, Trump says, the vote's going to be rigged. And we're like, oh, my God, he's just he's doing our advertising, you know, marketing this project and, and, and making it incredibly important. But there were hundreds of articles that were filed from the findings on Election Day. So the, the model that we had was... Uh, work with a bunch of journalism school students and 300 local media partners and source these stories in real time. I mean, it was it was a remarkable and remarkably complex operation, but we were signaling out to reporters during Election Day. And the result of those signals was, I, I want to say, between two and 300 stories, maybe off on that, in terms of the comprehensive view from there wasn't voter fraud. ProPublica did a series of stories on that. Okay, so that was major. That was a pivotal was moment, yeah. but very costly, right? Yeah, yeah. Costly, well, costly in terms of we had a hundred people in the CUNY uh, journalism school newsroom on election night. So certainly, there's cost getting all those people together. But 
when you think about the person hours, we had a thousand journalists using the software. We had about 700 in check and about a thousand on the Slack. We used Slack as a communication backend for the project. When you think about the person hours that went into that, that came out of that project, it was a pretty efficient investment. So this will continue. Yeah. I would be shocked if, it, if we didn't do midterms, and, and sh- I, I, I believe election land is a model going forward, and I think that first draft and pop-up newsroom as global election monitoring efforts and, and the research that comes out of that is going to—I think we've invented a whole new mode of election monitoring, and, and I think it's going to be a really powerful— an important tool, especially as we see the kind of weaponization, the misinformation campaigns that are now being waged around elections, the the bot armies that are being dis- deployed to just you know regurgitate misinformation. All of this needs to be addressed in in efforts that identify and call out misinformation, disinformation campaigns in in the run-up and and, uh, into Election Day. David Remnick, New Yorker, he talks about this as the golden age of ignorance that we're in. How do we uh, fight the media moguls who take over, for instance, the guy who owns National Enquirer is now trying to take Time magazine and all of those assorted magazines. Yeah. Yeah. And that's editorial content that how, how do we get around that kind of gaming? The answer used to be the Internet. You know, the Internet will save us from yeah. from this. Have you guys all talked about that? You, you were just at a conference in Italy. Yeah, yeah, International Journalism Festival. At a certain level, the the same consumer appetite that had people clicking on Taboola and Outbrain's ads as a means of supporting serious journalism is now supplanting serious journalism with that sort of reporting. And there there are some good signs in subscription models and what's you know happening for the Post and the Times. There's a lot of people who are saying, oh, okay, we do need to pay for this. And maybe that's one positive trend out of all of this. But the idea that people who are just dead set to promote agenda-driven media are, are going to control influential, you know, Fox News feels, feels very innocent in comparison you know, with these efforts. So the idea that, you know, that Breitbart would become as influential as Fox is... is yeah, is, and David Pecker with yeah. the, the time empire, if it's, that happens. It's terrifying. But, so that's continuing this silo, like people yeah. who believe a certain way, they know which outlets to go to. And yeah. you and I may go to ProPublica and read what we know to be the truth. Are we never going to have the mediation between these groups through journalism. That, that's the hope. But, I mean, really the, the deepest hope for journalism is that um, the truth uh, has more weight than untruth. You know, if that is thrown out, then, then the sorting mechanism <laughs> just Yes, because fails. journalism is all about the truth. It's, it's there. It, it's supposed to help us. Yeah, yeah. I I think that we're in some some really really dark days and and that these technologies that we thought were you know so liberating and so empowering and the wisdom of the crowd that would that would surface and 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 the sort of Wikipedia model 
writ across human knowledge that would have affordances for editing and annotating and uh, revising every object of knowledge until it came to the point that was like it was better true. <laughs> yeah, or, or more true. As we wade into conversations around the truth, one, one thing is that working in a global context, you're really humble about the truth. You recognize that there are a thousand truths that describe an important piece of every event. It's, it's not just to descend into total relativism, but to acknowledge that context is, is always dependent on you know, cultural framing, the reader framing, the understanding the source better. So I, I feel like I want to offer this disclaimer that as, as I'm saying, you know, we need the truth to mean more, that I'm not saying there's not just there, one there is one truth and, and, and you I know, no, nor, nor should there be one arbiter of the truth. And, yeah. and right now, the one thing's very concerning for journalism is, is the is the fact that Google and, and Facebook are distributing and Twitter distributing. You know, these, these are distribution pipelines that are so dominant right now, purely in terms of how search algorithms and newsfeed are influencing what we're getting on a daily basis in our media diet. Those are the, the platforms are very, very serious about saying we don't want to be arbiters of truth, but... The algorithms that power newsfeed and power search are arbiters of meaning, and that is is a a pretty close proxy mm-hmm. for truth. You know, I think we're in some really dark early days of understanding um, how these systems uh, we're, we're at a failure point. I think there is resolve to try to do better, and that's 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 changed a lot since uh, early November. They understand the problem, okay. and neither one of them is, is saying, oh, we need to build a truth algorithm, which is really good. And our role over the next year is going to be helping think about how signals from journalists are treated by those uh, platforms. So having a way of looking at how 30 or 40 different journalists from around the world are are viewing a, a claim that might be circulating and and then surfacing that into a Google search result as as a fact check. Would it post an alert to yeah, the reader? Yeah, so Google started doing this already. So Google, in, in some cases, uh, if you're on Google News and an article contains a claim that's been fact checked, they're just, and this is just in the last month, starting to surface fact check. Facebook has dispute. We can better structure signals into those types of systems I really respect the technology building you're doing for journalists. I think it's it's really important. I worry about the flip side of that. There is less curiosity today hmm. because of some of the technologies that have been built. Readers become lazy. They don't do the the deep connecting. They put trust where they shouldn't. Yeah. What do we do about that? That I mean it, it's the technology is partly to blame for that. Yeah, at least before we had to open and unfold yeah, the newspaper. A, a, yeah, it is Nanny's Garden next to, you know, bombing in Yemen. Yes. I think the response to that is, well, two things. Decay of society motivates people to realize that sitting back and allowing the media system to decay has some real bad consequences. So, but also thinking about tools that allow people to, to feel that they have um, 
more agency than just putting up a uh, a smiley face or a, you know a a sobbing face. And, and those go to structural issues with the web. How do we Wikipediaify the internet in a better way so that even citizens can write signals in a structured way that a journalist who wants to take in those signals or who's looking for them or who's maybe gotten a really credible signal from that person before might look at and say, oh, my God, this needs to be written about because it's going to change this story. What's coming up for you in the future? Bridge is our translation project. So we're working to to bring that product into open source. And we're also looking to integrate Bridge as a translation solution with Czech, which is a verification solution. So a lot of these events that break around the world are reported outside our language community, giving journalists a good way to get firsthand data, get that professionally translated, and then do verification work on top of that. We're working with some some stellar partners, so we've got projects uh, in the pipeline now with the Syria Video Archive, uh, which is a really important project to archive and mark up videos uh, that we hope will have evidentiary value. The Digital Verification Corps, which is a Amnesty International and Berkeley Human Rights Center project, some of those projects are in the pipeline. We are keen to to see check in more newsrooms in the US and to repeat the election work that we've we've uh, been doing. If somebody yeah. wants to get a hold of you or, or go to your website, yeah. if, if you could share that with us. Yeah, we're at median, it's M-E-E-D-A-N.com. And uh, can always send me an email at hello at median.com. That email will go to me and my colleague Anja Omina and, and Tom Trowinard. Anyone who's interested in contributing to open source software development or helping us think through some of these thorny issues that we're working on, we'd love to hear from you. Right now is this moment in history. We, we need technologists, we need journalists, uh, but we also need philosophers. I think we are dealing with issues of truth and ethics, and we, we've created hugely powerful technologies, and maybe we've lost our way. Maybe we needed more philosophers and academics involved in thinking through what this would mean. Thank you so much, Ed. Yeah, no, it was, it was my pleasure. That was Ed Bice, the co-founder and CEO of MeDan. You've been listening to Method to the Madness, a weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. You can find all of our podcasts on iTunes University. We'll be back again next Friday at noon. 